Welcome to the Vail Christian Church Podcast. This week, Pastor Ben Pitney has a message titled, Looking into Eternity. Join us in Revelation chapter 19, verses 6 through 8. At Vail Christian Church, we believe in training followers of Christ to worship, gather, give, and serve. So the thing that we've been working through is that if eternity and the, the truth of eternity, the subject of eternity, or our understanding of eternal things, if that's in proper perspective, all right, it changes the way you live. It changes the way you think. It influences everything about who we are and what we do and who we're supposed to be. So eternity is a really important subject. And we're going to look into the last book of the New Testament, Revelation. I want you to turn there to chapter 19. And in particular, there is a scene there. It's one of my favorite scenes in all of the scripture. There is a scene there, though, that is exciting. It's very exciting. It's very descriptive. I would say it can be uh, described easily as very dramatic, okay? And we're going to just look at one part of that scene, all right? Now, in particular, when you talk about Revelation, it seems to be this mysterious book that's difficult to understand, right? There's a lot of language in there that uh, seems to, you know, it's, it's imagery and, and sort of dip, difficult to kind of figure out what John is saying uh, sometimes. So what I would uh, encourage you to know is that the book of Revelation isn't going to be properly understood without reading the Old Testament. That's where you're going to find all the language and the imagery and and different things that um, we get confused with. So um, my point is you have to read your Bible, okay? And it takes a little bit of work and study to understand, but it's not beyond any of us, okay? The other thing is that Revelation 19, uh, the most simple way to describe, I think, what Revelation is, is to say it's a magnificent portrait or a picture, a painting, if you will, sort of in an art, art form of the risen King Jesus, okay? That's a, the, the, the way to summarize it in just a, a simple statement, right? Jesus is presented as the risen, glorified son, the ruler of, king of, of, of the kings of the earth, the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end, right? Um, uh, he is presented as the lion of the tribe of Judah, the lamb on the throne, Messiah, reigning forever, the word of God, the king of kings and lord of lords, the offspring of David, King David, the bright and morning star. Okay, that's just some of the language that you can extrapolate from this magnificent book, all right? It's, it's, um, so, so let's read chapter 19, start with verse 6, and it's titled appropriately in almost every version of the scriptures that you might be reading from, uh, the wedding celebration of the Lamb. So uh, listen to this. It says, then I heard what sounded like the voice of a vast throng, like the roar of many waters, like loud crashes of thunder. They were shouting, hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the all-powerful reigns. Let us rejoice 
and exult and give him glory because the wedding celebration of the lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. She was permitted to be dressed in bright, clean, fine linen for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. Now, wow. Amongst all kinds of things here, there's a lot going on, but this is a portrait of a beautiful painting of the magnificent Christ, right? And this is a moment, just a moment in a scene right here. This is the marriage arranged before the foundation of the earth, the dowry payment, if you will, made on the cross. The wedding, the marriage sealed by the new birth of the Holy Spirit. That's what this all represents, the feast of celebration in eternity, right? And I want you to listen in to this loud, boisterous moment of worship. Did you catch this? It's a loud, boisterous moment of worship, and I don't know what your view of worship is, but this is the most vibrant, loud, exuberant worship that's recorded in scriptures. Key word here, loud. Okay? All right, I don't think I get to say anything else. It says, like the roar of many waters, basically like a loud crashes of thunder, It's like standing under a waterfall. Have you ever stood under a waterfall? I mean, a big waterfall. I mean, you can't talk. You can't talk to anybody. You can't hear anything, right? Maybe um, you've tried to have a conversation next to a rushing river that rushes over rocks and things. It's not easy uh, to carry on a, a conversation, all right? So, or, you know, during thundering, you know, thundering and all of this. And these people are shouting hallelujah. There's an explosion of heartfelt worship by the bride of Christ. That's the church, the church, right? The church is singing this uh, of the lamb who was slain and is now risen and reigning. All these are key words and terms right here. And I want you to listen in to the content of this worship. The content, because these are people who are not confused about what's important. They're not confused. So as this song sort of reaches into eternity, we get to listen in here. We get to peer in. We get to look into eternity, just a glimpse. These voices absolutely get it, okay? They are clear. They know what's important, actually. And I want you to notice as they sing this unbelievable song, they don't say stuff like, hey, yeah, we had the best stuff on earth. I mean, wow, right? You wouldn't believe what kind of house, uh, you know, I was living in in the finest neighborhood and all that stuff. I had the best job and I advanced so far in my career, right? I got paid so well, I could eat anywhere we wanted to, right? Because we could afford it. I was surrounded by the coolest friends and people, I had the most beautiful wife or husband. I was so physically strong, right? I was the most intelligent person in my graduating class. See, none of that is even close to being said in this worship song. And there's a reason why I'm being sort of ridiculous and dramatic there. 
You don't hear any of that. None of these things that actually grip you and I so often in our worship, right? Because in light of what these people have experienced, in light of what they're now experiencing, in light of what they now know, all of that kind of stuff is feeble and non-existent in the light of the glories that they're now experiencing, okay? We need that kind of thinking. That's the kind of thinking we have to have. Now, let me list some things that are important to these people. That's what I'm going to do. I'm just going to make a list as a result of just reading that text and kind of grappling with it. Let me just point some things out. Make a list for you and I of the things that seem to be important to these people. And it might sound a little unusual to you, but I think it's important to point these things out. I really do. Okay, especially if we're going to talk about eternity and how it should be influencing how we think and live, right? Here's the first one. God is important. Okay, all right, whatever. God is important to me, Pastor Ben. God's important to me. And I get it, yes, but actually what I think is not always because I know myself. What do you mean? We can live God-forgetful lives just like that. You know what it's like to wake up in the morning and immediately your mind is flooded with your day and all the things that you need to do and get done? It's like a wave comes over you, right? Maybe you're a young mother, and when you get up first thing, somebody's crying, somebody's hungry, somebody needs something, and they need you to get it right now, right? And, and oh my gosh, and all, all these schedules that got to be kept and all these children that got to be shuttled around to everything, right? There's 12 things that your husband needs to be reminded of before he hits the door, right? And all of a sudden, you're captured by life and God doesn't exist. I don't know that we do it on purpose, but that's the way it works. Or you're at the end of a hard day at work and the only thing that you can think about when you get home is your favorite adult beverage, a sports game, and watching a little bit of TV and just plopping down in the chair. I got a chair. And nobody should sit in my chair, by the way. It's my chair. Even when guests come over and someone finds my chair, it kind of upsets me. Or it just sets me back a little bit, like, hey, of all the seats, does this not look like this might be my chair? <laughs> right? And in those moments, God does not exist for me. Right? I wish I could say for you and me that God always is in our thoughts, but he is not. And even though in his glorious grace, he's embedded himself in creation, so he's always visible. Think of it this way. You can get up in the morning without Bumping into God, we still miss him. We still do. How can you see a sunset without the glory of God? The change of the seasons without seeing the glory of God. The endless variety of human beings without seeing the glory of God. But we, we are so blind. So often, aren't we? Yes, the answer is yes. Are your eyes open to see God? And does that vision of God protect you and motivate you? Because it should. That's, what the, that's the truth that is screaming in this text here. There are people in this room right now. I'm going to get a little t- 
touchy, I think, probably. There are people in this room that did things this week that you shouldn't have done. You shouldn't have done those things. And that you wouldn't have done if God had been in your eyes. There are people right here in this room that are afraid of things that you wouldn't have been afraid of if God was in your eyes. There are people here today who need to do things that you're not doing that you would do if God was in your eyes. You see, we need that vision of God. And and it's my prayer today that the clarity of eternity would be yours and mine today. It changes everything when eternity is clear and understood. What else are these people talking about? What's going on here, right? God reigns. So God's important and God reigns. That's the next thing. The Lord Almighty reigns. It's the reign of God that's important. When you understand, they're singing about this. God reigns. When you understand that he is sovereign over everything and all the activity in, every, in everywhere, he's actively reigning, then you don't try to control people and situations in order to find rest and satisfaction when you understand this. You have rest even though you don't understand, even when you're not in control, even when there's just total chaos going on. You get it. You understand that there's one who is good and wise and kind and in control, right? And so you have peace when God reigns and you fully get your arms around that. The Apostle Paul, he presents the sovereignty of God in Acts chapter 17. You don't have to turn there, but verse 26, he says that God determines the exact place that we will live in the length of our days, and he does that so he's not far from each of us at any moment. That is good, correct theology that, that, that Paul is teaching. One of my most favorite ways to pray and to address God is to remind myself and everybody I'm praying with of this feature of who God is and his sovereign design of all creation that when we bow our heads before God as followers of Jesus, we're not talking to God like he's way up there far beyond the clouds, but he lives here intimately. He is that close. We're able to touch him. That's how much he cares That's correct and good theological thinking. That's all Paul is doing in Acts chapter 17. God has decided to rule his world with intimate control of the details of our lives so that he would always be near so that we could reach out and touch him. What an amazing feature of who God is. That's grace, actually. If you do that, if you quit beating up yourself with the what ifs, you quit, you, you get your arms around this, you, you stop with the if onlys, you quit living in fear and worry and concern, you quit controlling and trying to manipulate everything, you're able to live in a world that's broken, a world that's, ex, you know, got all kinds of messes and difficulties. You're able to live in a world like we just sort of looked at over this last couple of weeks and just went, my goodness, how does this happen How could this possibly happen? You can live in this kind of world with remarkable remarkable satisfaction and rest because you embrace the truth of 
the reign of God over all things, as if what has happened in Afghanistan and other places is like taking God by surprise somehow. If God reigns, it's important to you and something else remarkable happens. Your reign is not important. You see, these people are screaming. They're shouting it. Oh, look what else is important to these people. And this song that they're singing, they're talking about God's glory. God's glory is important. I'm going to say a little bit more about this in just a minute, but but let me say now, you're never going to understand the nature of your existence. You'll never get your arms around the journey of life in Christ unless you first understand that you are given life and breath for the glory of another. That's why you and I were born. And God wants to move you away from all the ugliness of sin and self-glory to a submission to the glory of God. Uh, We tend to think that life is all about us, and it's not. This this next one's a little bit more difficult to describe. I'm going to call it inclusion in the celebration. I don't know if you caught this. In the song, in the shouting, in the singing, in the worship, all right? These people and their voices not only understand that God's important, his reign is important, his glory is important, but their inclusion in the celebration, the wedding celebration, it's a really big deal. You can sum it up in a churchy word called redemption, okay? They have a joy inside that can't be robbed because they know something, They know that they've been redeemed. They know that they're included in the wedding celebration and the banquet feast. They know that they could have never achieved this on their their own. They could have never earned this on their own. They didn't deserve this invitation and this inclusion. It's all been given by grace. They were chosen before the foundation of the world, and God in his sovereignty led them to the point of faith belief. He's redeemed them by his blood. It's all about his grace. How could it be that out of the mass of humanity, how could it be that out of the mass of humanity, they've been redeemed? They're just screaming about it. My goodness, God loved us this much, Right? What an unbelievable mystery to be redeemed, to be included in this celebration. When you're redeemed, you have reason during and through the struggle in this broken world to celebrate day after day. You have reason. And when this finally grips us without any challenges, we understand the incalculable value of the shed blood of the Lord Jesus Christ because we're redeemed. We are included in the wedding celebration. It's magnificent. It's unbelievable. They're screaming it at the top of their lungs. Hallelujah, right? Wow. Here's the last thing that's really important to these folks. It's obvious they're talking about grace here that's celebrated by this huge song of praise. It's grace. Grace is important, All of it is just detail of what only grace can do. The most powerful and transformational word in all of Scripture is grace because 
fallen rebel humanity has turned its back on God, has shaken its fist at his authority. Fallen humanity has stepped over all the God's boundaries and actually set itself up on, on, on our own personal thrones and put ourselves on the throne of God. So what could be more important than grace? Because there's no hope for humanity without grace. Rescuing, forgiving, transforming, delivering grace, right? God is important. His reign's important. His glory's important. Uh, Inclusive redemption is important and grace is important. It's all featured in this unbelievable song, this loud, boisterous worship song. Now, there's four things that these people and their voices can help us with. There's four things. You ready? Here they come. First, I'm going to call it value clarification. Oh, man, do we need this. We regularly need our values clarified. Turn to Numbers chapter 11. So Numbers chapter 11. So there's Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus. Numbers chapter 11. Oh, this is a great scene. So Numbers chapter 11, slip down to verse 4. Watch this. You know, when um, God's chosen people are delivered out of slavery and they're wandering in the desert, they're traveler pilgrims. Watch this. Now, the mixed multitude, starting in verse 4, who are among, uh, among them craved for more desirable food. And so the Israelites wept again and they said, if only we had meat to eat. We remember the fish we used to eat freely in Egypt, the cucumbers, the melons, the leeks, the onions, and the garlic. But now we're dried up and there's nothing at all before us except this manna. Now the manna was like coriander seed and its color was like the color of bedellium. And the other people went out and gathered it and ground it with mills and pounded it into mortars. They baked it in pans and made cakes of it. It tasted like fresh olive oil. And when the dew came down on the camp at night, the manna fell with it. So, look, there's something going on here. What in the world is happening? The issue is a complaint about the menu, right? There's a complaint about the menu. I feel like this happens. I feel like you know what I mean. Right? If you eat the same thing over and over again, it's not very tasty. Right? And so God's people, rather than saying, how could there be a clearer sign of the covenant love and faithfulness of our God, right, that he would actually make edible material uh, appear, from, appear on the ground because we're not able to plant crops for ourselves because we're traveling pilgrims, right? Rather than all that, see, they miss the fact that this is such a significant picture of God's covenant love. It's so significant. It's so significant that Jesus takes this word manna as his own name later in scripture saying he's the bread that came down from heaven. See, these people actually look back at Egypt and and it looks to them more like a a delicatessen or a a restaurant rather than a place of slavery and death. Unbelievable, right? How scary. What a screwed up worldview they have at that moment. It's a mess. And at the end of the passage, God says, you've rejected me for Egypt. I can't believe this. 
They're so lost in their craving and their discontent with the menu that they're willing to turn their back on God and go back to the horror of slavery in Egypt. How's that for needing value clarification? The food issue becomes so important that they can't even see the world with any kind of clarity. Now, before you get all over these people, if you think that they are any different than you and me, you are not being truthful with yourself and you're lying. You're lying. As if you've never complained about the menu, right? We do it all the time, all the time, right? Okay, I don't want to beat that one up too hard. Let's go to worship retrieval. What? Yes. We not only need value clarification, and wor- we need worship retrieval. See, your worship needs to be retrieved from where it's being placed and what we're worshiping, all this kind of stuff. When you hear the word worship, we often think of formal worship on Sunday like we just experienced with the band and the singers and the, all the cool stuff, right? That's what we think worship is for the most part. And it, it, it's, it's a big deal and, and, and it's important, but you got to understand worship for us is first and foremost our identity before it's our activity. We have been designed by God for worship. We're created to worship. We are, by our very nature, a worshiper. Now, in Romans chapter 1, in just one verse, verse 25, it says that sinful people tend to exchange worship and service of the Creator for worship and service of the creation. Paul gets kind of instructive with this, right? What it means is that we're always attaching our identity and our meaning and our purpose, our inner sense of well-being to something. And so there is something that is always laying claim to the worship, rulership of our hearts. And the Bible would say that since the heart is the control center of the human being, whatever my heart worships will then exercise control over my desires, my thoughts, my words, and my actions. And so it's really easy to put God in a position of worship in our theology, but not in my functional theology. I'm actually ruled and controlled by the desire for worshiping things in creation, in other words, like comfort and my preferences, by the way. Those become too important to us. Pleasure becomes too important to us. Acceptance becomes too important to us. Power becomes too important to us. Being right becomes too important to us. Material possessions becomes too important to us. And it becomes this great war, right? And so we need to remember again and again, we need to hear again and again that God is the only thing, the only one who exists in the universe who is worthy of our worship. It's got to be retrieved from what we are worshiping, right? It's only worship at God that doesn't carry danger with it. Let's, let's keep going. I'm, I'm going to call this next point glory repositioning. Turn to John chapter 6. So in John chapter 6 is a great scene again. Awesome scene. I've utilized this scene before in this series. But let's just look because what we're talking about here, at two, there's two kinds of glory. There's ultimate glory and then there's sign glory. Two kinds of glory, ultimate glory and sign glory. 
ultimate glory that is the glory of God, and, and that's the, 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 the one glory that will always only satisfy the heart. Ultimate glory, the glory of God. And then sign glory is um, uh, all of God's created things, those glorious created things are meant to be signs that continue to point us to the one glory that is ultimate, the one glory that will always satisfy us, there is ultimate glory and sign glory, okay? Now, let's get to this next thing. By God's design, we're built for glory. We are glory-oriented. We're unique from the rest of creation is not glory-oriented, all right? You know this because you like seven-layered chocolate cake. It is glorious. And it can be seven layers of almost any kind of cake, actually, right? Oh, it's glorious. Have you ever been kissed on the cheek by a little child, by just a baby that just kind of gets it and they kiss you on the cheek? It's, it's glorious. Look at this scene in John chapter 6, verse 14. See, what's happening here is Jesus has just fed 5,000 people with a boy's lunch. This is an awesome scene. Verse 14, now when the people saw the miraculous sign that Jesus performed, they began to say to one another, this is certainly the prophet who has come into the world. It seems like they're getting it, right? This is, the, this is Messiah. This is a prophet. Seems like they understand. Now look at what Jesus does in verse 15. Then Jesus, because he knew they were gonna come and seize him by force to make him king, he takes off and he goes to the mountains in verse 15. Then in verse 25, you find out these people are actually confused. When they find him on the other side of the lake eventually, because they're searching all around, where'd he go? They say, Rabbi, when did you get here? What are you doing? Where did you go? And then Jesus says in verse 26, I tell you the solemn truth, you're looking for me, not because you saw miraculous signs, but because you ate all the loaves of bread that you wanted, right? Again, the menu. They're saying, He's, uh, Jesus is saying, you stopped at the sign. You stopped at the sign. You don't want me because you understand I'm the, you know, because you understand I'm the bread of life. All you're wanting is physical, earthly glory. You just think that I'm going to give you the, the ultimate buffet, right? He goes on to say, except you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you're not going to enter the kingdom of heaven. You missed the point, people. You missed the point. You missed the point that I, I, I won't be that kind of Messiah for you. The glory that has existed or excited you is all the wrong kind of glory. So we need glory repositioning, you see. We need it again and again because we have this tendency to stop at the sign and not live for what the sign points to. All right, here comes the next one. It's, it's kind of hard to put into words, but I'm going to call it resist. Immediate reward in preference for later reward. Not only do we need value clarification and worship relocation and glory repositioning, sounds kind of rhymy, sorry. We need to learn the importance of resisting immediate reward in preference for later reward. We are so impatient, right? I am. When I read the scripture, I'm amazed by the patience of God. I'm amazed at the generations between the fall of Adam and Eve and the coming of Jesus and all of God's patience. And why did God choose his way? It's very simple because it's the best way. 
What does waiting do? I hate waiting. What does waiting do? Well, waiting confronts us at, the, at a very deep level that we're not in charge. Right? Waiting tells us we're not in charge. We're not in control. And generally, we don't have any complaints with waiting until the circumstances or people cause us to wait. Because <laughs> then we're confronted with the important spiritual reality that we're not the center of the universe. We're not in control. We're not the author of the story. We're not the architect of the plan in which we've been included. So we got to wait. Turn to Romans chapter 2. Paul is talking about final judgment in Romans chapter 2 and verse 6. He says, he will reward each one according to his works, eternal life to those who by perseverance and good works seek glory and honor and immortality, but wrath and anger to those who live in selfish ambition and do not obey the truth, but follow unrighteousness who are basically un- impatient, take matters into their own hands. Now that phrase tells you this. Waiting, by biblical definition, is active. Just because you're waiting does not mean that you're not working. It's not just sitting around and hoping for good stuff to come because I'm willing to wait, see? When you're willing to wait, because I know the timing of God is always right, all the ways of the Lord are always right and true. His plan is as perfect as it could be. When you wait for his promises to come into reality, When you're willing and waiting, we actively are doing his kingdom work because we know the kingdom hasn't fallen apart. Everything's not coming apart. We know that the king hasn't abandoned us. Nothing's taken God by surprise. We know everything's not going to come crashing to the ground necessarily. And because I know this, it motivates me to work for the kingdom. We're waiting in our working. So we give ourselves to the work of the kingdom in our families, in our neighborhoods, in our jobs, in our personal life, in our church. We're motivated as we wait for the glory to come. Now, what does this have to do with me now? Hang on. Okay, don't move. Hold tight. Here it comes. It's going to come quick again. When you listen to this song, when you listen to this song in Revelation, when you absorb and you understand this song, When you get your arms around this song of these people, it reaches into eternity and it leads you to confess the need for your values to be communicated. Listen to this song. Pay attention. What's important here? Number two, when you listen to this song and what these people are saying and what's important to them, you see what happens is it determines that your worship should be retrieved from worshiping the wrong things. When you listen to the song, what's this have to do with you and me? It causes understanding that you need glory repositioned from stopping to worship the glorious signs. We're always stopping at the signs. We need to move to the glory that is ultimate, the glory of God. When you listen to this song in Revelation, it drives the need to embrace the satisfaction of resisting immediate reward in preference for later reward. Reward, right? Listen to this song from these people in Revelation. It reaches into eternity. Remember what's important. What's this have to do with me? We, we have to remember what's important. 
Pray that God would rule and reign and remind you of the importance of his glory and his grace. Bow your head with me. Thank you, Lord. Oh, this is a great scene. We need to be reminded over and over again. We drift. We get caught up in the menu. <laughs> All these things. We stop at the sign thinking, and, and we worship at the sign. We forget what it's pointing to. We don't even look sometimes. We think that we're the center of the universe and our reign is important. It happens to all of us, Lord God. Forgive us. Forgive us, God. Thank you for being patient with us in our impatience. Thank you for declaring again, over and over again, in your sovereign creation, the signs that you are sovereign and in control of everything, and we don't need to be. Thank you for knowing the best way Ah, teach us, Lord. These are hard lessons, but teach us anyway. Stretch us and cause us to grow. Help us to look into eternity and keep it in our minds so that we can adjust the way we live in everything. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Vail Christian Church Podcast. If you have any questions, would like more information about our church, or would like to see the video cast of this message, please visit our website at www.bailchristian.com.